All right, so we are in a series called Paradigm, which is all about reading and understanding the Bible, reading the Bible and reading it with understanding. And today we are in part nine, which today we're going to talk about God's wisdom, God's wisdom. And the question that this is going to answer for us is, what does God want for me? What does God want for me? Now, very often people wonder, what does God want? of me? What does God expect of me? What are the things that I need to do in order to please God? However, did you ever think about the fact that 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 is related to what God wants for us? What God wants for us? And you can think about it from a parent's perspective. In the scriptures, we're told uh, parents are supposed to obey, or children are supposed to obey their parents. And, uh, the, you know, that's one of the big ones. That's the Ten Commandments. And it goes on to say, so that you will live long, basically, and prosper. You know, it's kind of like the Vulcan thing. Live long and prosper. How do you do that? You're going to do that because of obeying your parents. That's going to help. Now, think about what a, when a parent gives instruction why do they do that? You know, certainly there are some parents and people in authority that are doing so out of uh, some kind of power trip and they want their kids to obey them and that's really important, make them feel important. But most of the time, a healthy parent is going to be given instruction to their kids. Why? Because they want them to do well. They know a little something about the world and they want something for them And that's why they ask these things of them. And I think the same kind of thing happens in our relationship with God. So what does God want for me? And it has to do with this idea of his wisdom. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. This whole series, you might remember, is talking through a paradigm that was suggested by the Bible Project and the podcast that they did on that. The link for that is found in your growth guide. And I've been running you through uh, my version of the paradigm. They first talk about how overarching the paradigm is that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. The way that we've talked about that is that the point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. Jesus said in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. The scriptures point to me. That's what the Bible is all about. Now, there are certain pillars that uphold this idea, and that's what we've been talking about in the weeks previous. Uh, Number one, that the Bible is both human and divine. Keywords there, human and divine. It's not either or. They're not mutually exclusive. It's a both and. The Bible is also unified. They would talk about it as a unified piece of work. And the way that we've talked about that is that the Bible, what the Bible teaches is true, is true. You have to take the teaching of the scriptures as a whole in context in order to know what the Bible is talking about because it is unified. The third point they make is that it is messianic literature. The way that we've talked about that is that the Bible is the story of God's setting things right through his son. In the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, it's all about leading up to Jesus and his setting things right. We see that happening ultimately in the cross and resurrection. And now his son, Jesus, lives in and through his people. We are described as his 
body, and we participate in the setting of things right. Fourthly, the, is that the key word here is meditation. It's meditation literature. And this is what we've been talking about recently. The Bible was designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. And this is very closely related to the pillar that we're talking about today. And that pillar is that the Bible is wisdom literature. Here's how the Bible Project describes it. The term wisdom literature often refers to a collection of books within the Bible. Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Songs. What are they saying? There, there are different types of literature in the Bible. There are historical books. There are poetry books. There are uh, letters. There are biographies. And one category of literature in the Bible is wisdom literature, and they give the some examples of that. They go on to say, however, that the Bible itself, the whole of the Bible, is wisdom literature in that of the diverse literary styles, and that's what I was just talking through, in the Bible, the diverse literary styles of the Bible reveal God's wisdom and invite us into a journey of character transformation. In other words, as we read through the scriptures, as we're exposed to the scriptures, the idea is that God imparts his wisdom, his guidance, what he wants for us, what he wants of us so that we, he can give us what he wants for us in the various literary styles and historical writings and everything else in the scripture. And the result is that our character is transformed. Our character is transformed. So we looked at this a little bit uh, last week. I'm going to emphasize, we, we looked at this particular passage, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 to 21. We focused on the bulk of it, but I'm going to point out the very last point because this was all about meditation literature, but it's also related to the fact that it is wisdom literature. So what does uh, Moses say? So commit yourself wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Actually, this is God speaking through Moses. Uh, tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Teach them to your children. We talked about how you know, this, is, this is the idea. You're constantly exposing and re-exposing yourself to the scriptures. You talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up, coming and going, rising, lying down, you're talking about the scriptures. Put them everywhere. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates of your cities so that, and here's what we're talking about today, so that, what's the result? So that as long as the sky remains above the earth, you and your children may flourish. And my way of talking about this pillar that the Bible is wisdom literature is this. Number five. Human flourishing is the goal. Human flourishing is the goal. Why does God want to give us his wisdom? Why has God given us his wisdom, including in the scriptures? It's because like a good parent, he wants what's best for us. Human flourishing, as we saw at that end of the passage in Deuteronomy, is the goal. So what God wants for you is for you to flourish in your relationships, in your finances. In, now, this isn't get, 
get rich or, you know, you're always going to be fine if you just follow Jesus financially. But, but he does want what's good for you in all of these areas. So the challenge today is going to be to pick some area of wisdom, to pick and post a question, to post it somewhere, to put it before you somewhere, whether that's in your car or in the mirror in your bathroom or on your refrigerator, put it somewhere where you're going to see it, some question, and this will make more sense later, that will lead you to God's wisdom. So that's going to be the challenge for this week. Let me read to you our focus passage. Now, again, I'm going to do things a little bit differently today in that I'm not going to exegete this particular passage, but I think this is a good passage that kind of gives us the context of the relationship between God wanting something of us and God wanting something for us. This is also in Deuteronomy. It's chapter 30, verses 15 to 20, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. This is what it says. Now listen, this is Moses giving the summary, kind of the closing argument of his message. Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, And if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today, I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and cursings. Now, I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live you can make that this choice by loving the lord your god obeying him and committing yourself firmly to him this is the key to your life and if you love and obey the lord you will live long in the land the lord swore to give your ancestors abraham isaac and jacob would you pray with me Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would, among and above all things, just convince each one of us listening, watching, here right now, that you do want what's best for us, and that the wisdom that you give us is to that end. Give us ears to hear what you want to say. Give us discernment and insight for the things that we need to do. And give us courage and determination to follow you wholeheartedly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, our schedule. On site, message today. Then next week, that message is available online and on demand. And I try to podcast today's message sometime on Sunday or Monday of that week. So that's the best way to keep up with it if you do have to miss. 
what we're talking about today ties in very much with our kind of tagline that we're always saying around Cornerstone. We inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Why? What, what do we want for people? Because following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life. And for those of you who might be watching or listening online, if you are new to Cornerstone, we hope that you will let us know who you are so that we can welcome you personally and include you in what we are doing. And one of the best ways you can do that, whether you're on site here or online, is to text the word new to our church number, 603-225-2550. God's goal for you is human flourishing. He wants what is best for you. You. Now, as we talk about this idea of wisdom, I'm going to make a th three different points about it, and then I'm going to, we're going to kind of do a lab again. Don't worry, I'm not going to have you write a bunch like I did last week, but and, uh, we are going to kind of walk through what this looks like in my life in particular. So uh, first thing I want you to notice is that God is the source of true wisdom, not us. God is the source of true wisdom, not us. This is the essence of the Garden of Eden story. When God puts uh, the first humans in the Garden of Eden, and there are two trees that pray, play predominantly in this story, there's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By uh, He commands them not to eat of the tree of the life of uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by doing so, he is exerting his authority to tell us what's right and what's wrong, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And the essence of the sin there is people usurping God's authority and saying, no, 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 God, you don't get to decide what is right and wrong. You don't get to tell me what to do. I will decide what is right and wrong for me. That is the essence of it. God was not trying to keep something good from them. That was the essence of the serpent's temptation. It's like, God doesn't have your best interests in mind. He doesn't want what's good for you. You, you need to take things into your own hands. So God is the source of, of true wisdom, not us. And in Proverbs 1.7, uh, it makes this point when the in the introduction to the book of Proverbs, <clears throat> it literally says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, sometimes people get a little bit... Uh, messed up by that. It's like, are we supposed to be cowering in fear of God all the time? That doesn't sound like a good relationship. The, the idea behind this is actually respecting God and his authority. The message translation pulls that out really well. You've noticed that <clears throat> very often I will reference the message translation. If you would like to have your own copy, we have free copies like that available on the table back there, uh, courtesy of the New Hampshire Bible Society. This is how the message translation puts that. Start with God. <clears throat> the first step in learning is bowing down to God. So you can see there that the, the whole idea is it's recognizing God and his authority and therefore putting me in my place, my appropriate place, my right place. And when I do that, that is the first step 
of wisdom. It goes on to say in the second half of that verse, only fools thumb their noses at such wisdom and learning. Now, this is Hebrew poetry again. Remember, there's a, con- there's a parallelism and a contrast here. So it says uh, the first step is bowing down to God. Now, what's in parallel to that? If you're wise, you're going to bow down to God. If you're foolish, then you're going to thumb your nose at wisdom and learning. What's in parallelism to the fear of the Lord or bowing down to God? It's wisdom and learning. So when we submit ourselves to God, we are uh, uh, availing ourselves to God's wisdom. So the first step about wisdom is to recognize that God is the source of wisdom. We're never going to be truly wise. We're never going to truly have wisdom until we come into a right relationship with God, recognizing his authority over us. So, sorry. Human flourishing is the goal. God is the source of all true wisdom, not us. And wisdom is not just head knowledge, but practical know-how. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just something that you know. It is something that you do. Now, this point is made uh, very interestingly in Exodus chapter 31. Now, the context context for this is that uh, Moses is receiving the instructions from the Lord on how to build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting and of worship, the center of worship for the people. And it's going to require some building and some skills and some craftsmanship. And so the Lord, then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I've picked out this one particular person. And what have I done with him? I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. Now, most of that set of things that God has given, you would think, okay, this is going to be somebody who's going to be like a guru, who's very smart, who knows all the right things to say and knows all the right things to do. But look at the result, what, what, what is the result of all this filling that God has given him? To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. It's all these craftsmanship skills that are going to be needed for building the temple, and, and it's described as wisdom. And it's just making the point that wisdom in the the biblical understanding is skill. It's the ability to do something. Look at all the parallelism. I've got out my highlighter again. Uh, what, What is he filled with? Spirit of God, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, skills. Those are all in parallel. It's all describing what God has given to this craftsman. And all of these things are supposed to give us insight into the other. So wisdom included in this, we see that it is a gift of God's spirit, that there's a sense of understanding and knowledge, but it's also skill. It's the ability to do something. So it's not just head knowledge. It's not just knowing how to do something. It's doing it. You know, parents will tell their kids, do this. And then the parent... uh, goes back because they didn't do that. And what's the kids say? I know. 
right? I know. Well, uh, no, you don't know, not in this sense, unless you do, because that's what wisdom is, and that's what we're talking about. So the goal, human flourishing, is the goal. That's what God wants for us. Therefore, since it's not just head knowledge, but it's the know-how. It's knowing how to do the right thing. Character transformation, not just an accumulation of knowledge, is the goal. There are people that you will probably encounter that know the Bible inside and out. But they might not be godly people. They might not be pleasant people to be around. They might not be loving people because it's not just a matter of knowledge. It's what you do with it. And notice that I've said here that human flourishing is the goal. And then I'm saying here character transformation is the goal. Kind of like in the Bible where there's a parallelism. They kind of give insight into one another. I'm doing the same kind of thing here. How is it that we have human flourishing? What is going to make your life flourish? Well, God's plan What he wants for you is to share his wisdom with you so your character is transformed and as a result of who you become, you flourish and life gets better because you know Jesus. So character transformation, not just an accumulation of knowledge is the goal. Most famously, the apostle Paul said in the first letter to the Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, what is he saying there? Knowledge, you know, you know a lot of stuff and you get all puffed up. You're filled with pride, but love builds up. Here's how the New Living Translation puts it. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, this is the same passage we were looking at a couple of weeks ago, and I told you that every time in this letter where it says now regarding, he's, it's introducing another question that the Apostle Paul is answering, and he's talking about food that has been offered to idols. If a food has been offered to a false god, is it okay to partake in a meal where that is offered? And the, and the end result that he comes with is that we may know that these gods out there don't really exist, but not everybody knows that, and it might violate their conscience to participate in that. It might encourage them to violate their conscience if you participate in that with them. So the loving thing to do is to restrict your freedom out of love for your brother or sister. So he goes on to say, now we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, we know, they've been saying, we know that these guards aren't real. We know it's just meat. So yes, you have that knowledge. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. The most important thing here is not what you know. It's that you are loving to others. Uh, Now, They go on in the Bible Project to explain uh, what they mean about the Bible as wisdom literature by saying this. The Bible doesn't provide us with wisdom in the way a reference book or a dictionary does. Remember, we started this whole series talking about what the Bible is not. And it's not just a list of all the possible situations that you could encounter and what to do. But the goal is that through this story of God's interacting with his people 
that you will learn and pick up principles that will transform your character and make you into a different person that acts, therefore, in a different way and therefore experiences the flourishing that God wants for you. So what I wanted to do is just give you a couple of examples of how I personally have benefited from God's wisdom. And they're mostly questions that I ask myself in a particular situation. Because remember, uh, I'm not going to encounter in the Bible every single situation and what I should do in that particular situation. But there are principles that I can apply in every situation. So here are a couple of ways that that has worked out in my life. What's some examples of God's wisdom in my life? One question that I can ask myself is, what is the controlling influence in my life right now? The controlling influence in my life right now. The reason I uh, put that right now in there is that generally, if I'm a follower of Jesus, then hopefully God's Holy Spirit is the controlling influence in my life. But if you're like me, that's not entirely the case 100% of the time. Occasionally, some other influences kind of creep in. And so I want to ask myself, what is the controlling influence in my life right now? Is it anger? Is it worry? Is it frustration? Is it fear? What is the controlling influence in my life? Here's where I get this, a couple of verses. Uh, These are all going to be very familiar uh, for those of you that have been around for any period of time. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what am I doing? I'm giving you an example of how meditating on the scriptures, turning it over and over again, looking at it from different directions, results in wisdom for my life. Again, there's a parallelism there. Drunk with wine is paralleled with, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, The contrast is the different results in your life. You will be, your life will be ruined. And then it goes on to say in the next verse, some of the positive effects of being filled with the Spirit. So when you talk about being drunk, you talk about being under the influence. Well, what, what does drunk mean? It means that the alcohol becomes the controlling influence in your life. It influences you. And in fact, that's how I define drunkenness is not, you don't have to be passed out on the floor. If it's affecting you, it's changing you, if it's influencing you, then to me, that's, you've gone too far. So what is influencing my life? As a believer... The only thing that should be the controlling influence in my life is God's Holy Spirit. So when I face a situation and I'm worried about something and I'm going to act based on that worry, based on my trust, instead of based on the trust in the Holy Spirit, then that's a red flag for me. Sometimes when I'm faced with something that causes fear and I want to act out of that fear, That's an immediate red flag to me because what's the controlling influence in my life at that time? It's fear. If if I'm making a decision rooted in fear, that's a red flag because that fear has become the controlling influence in my life. Uh, How do I know when my anger has gotten out of control? If the anger becomes the controlling influence, if I'm doing things because I'm angry that I wouldn't be doing otherwise... That has become the controlling influence in my life. Another 
another verse that talks about this is Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's all about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What are the different fruit, uh, the aspects of the fruit of having the Holy Spirit being the controlling influence in your life? And the last one is self-control. Now, this is really good news because so many of our problems have to do with self-control, right? We're we're doing things that we know we should. Do, Do you know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, with God's Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you have self-control? It's not a question of, oh, I wish I had more self-control. I wish I wouldn't do that. The reality is self-control has been given to you as a gift, as a birthright, as a follower of Jesus. So what's the controlling influence in my life? Another question that I ask myself is, am I telling myself and others the truth? And remember, these are different ways that I'm just kind of meditating on and reflecting upon God's word and how it is impacting my life. This was a huge, huge revelation for me. Um, couple, many years ago, I ran across a book called Telling Yourself the Truth, written by a Christian author and psychologist. And the point he was making is that most believers don't have any confusion about whether or not you should lie or not. You know, is is God for lying? No, probably not. So we, we get that. And we know we're not supposed to tell a lie, tell each other lies. But very often, people will tell themselves lies. I just can't control it. What did we just say? You have, you have self-control. Uh, you, know, you, you tell the, you're, I don't think that's going to work. Well, what, is, what does God say about the situation? We, we would come down hard on ourselves and others for telling lies to other people, but we lie to ourselves through our self-talk over and over and over again. So yeah, it's important to tell others the truth, but um, are you telling yourself the truth? And the way that this really got uh, just driven home for me, reading in the gospel in John 8, 44, Jesus in a confrontation with the Pharisees says, you belong to your father, the devil, saying you're children of the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. Well, what would, what would um, Jesus be saying to, uh, what would he be seeing in their lives that would make him think they belong to the devil? There are two things that he mentions. The first one is murder. We get that. But the second one is lying, not telling the truth. And why is that? Because he goes on to say, when he lies, talking about the enemy, talking about the devil, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is a lying liar who lies. That's that's what he's saying. And... When you lie to others or yourself, it's just like your father, the devil. Now, that's that's a pretty serious accusation that Jesus is making against the Pharisees. Now, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to be a lying liar who lies or the child of one who does, right? but we excuse lies to ourselves all the time. So I ask myself, is what I'm saying to myself in line with the truth of God's word? Because if it's not, it's time to change and tell myself something else. Uh, 
even the smallest of lives to others, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to exert control over them because if I can get them to believe something different through my words or actions, uh, I, don't, I don't even have to say anything to lie to somebody, right? I can deceive somebody without saying anything. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to control them. And that's what the enemy wants to do is control others for his own purposes. I don't want to have anything to do with that, right? So am I telling myself and others the truth? So often we, we allow ourselves to believe and tell ourselves over and over again these lies. And we wonder why we're anxious, angry, concerned, worried, disturbed. What did Jesus say about this? In John 14, 1, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your, don't let your spirit be agitated. What's the, what's, the, what's, the, what's the antidote for that? Trust in God and trust also in me. I got this. I'm going to take care of you. If, you. if I'm in control and I love you and I want what's best for you, you don't have to worry about it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. The last is actually a two, two questions that I pair together. What's the loving thing to do and what's the wise thing to do? What's the loving thing to do and what's the wise thing to do? Let's start with, with wisdom. Uh, several years ago, er, early in the church, I read a book by Andy Stanley called uh, The Best Question Ever. And it's based on Ephesians 5.15, where the Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, says, be careful how you live. Now, careful here is not cautious. It's not, oh, I'm afraid to do anything, so I'm going to play it safe. Careful has the idea here of being thoughtful, putting care into your decisions. Be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. They're, they're, when you make choices... You, you could probably figure out what's the wise thing to do, what's the foolish thing to do. Do Act like the person who's wise. I don't feel like I'm per, per, particularly wise. Uh, well, can you think of what a wise person would do, somebody smarter than you would do in this situation? Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, do that. <laughs> All right, just, just do that. And so the best question ever is what's the wise thing to do? So if you face a particular situation, here he's saying, you've got a choice. Give some thought to how you live. Think about what, what a foolish person would do in that situation, what a wise person would do, and then do the wise thing. And you'll be wise. So what's the wise thing to do? That, that gives me a lot of insight. And then what's the loving thing to do? The, Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. This is his new commandment. It's the bottom line. It's the whole of his teaching summed up in one statement. Love each other. And then he gives the, what makes it new, which is the standard. Love, just as, love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And he goes on to say, oh, by the way, this is the distinguishing characteristic of my followers. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Well, what does it mean to love each other? And what does it mean to love as Jesus loved? Well, a little bit later, actually, this is, uh, that's wrong. That's the old reference. This is John 15, 13. He says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is Memorial Day weekend. I always think of this verse 
on Memorial Day weekend because everybody who who goes into the military signs a check up to and including their life for the benefit of others, people they don't know who they are calling their friends. What did Jesus do? He sacrificed his life so that we could be adopted, forgiven, included in the kingdom of God. He said, this is what love looks like. It's laying down your life. And some of us may be called on to do something like that, but, but the, the more normal, natural way that this happens is that we, we serve others. We lay down our life. We put aside our preferences. We give up our time and our resources for the benefit of others. So based on what Jesus did and what Jesus said, I've defined love as doing what is best for others, even if it costs you, regardless of the cost to yourself. So... What's the best thing for the person? I'll do that even if it costs me something. That's what love is. So what's the wise thing to do? What's the loving thing to do? If I ask myself those questions, I often get good insight into what I should be doing. Bottom line, human flourishing is the goal. And lastly, this is the best part of it. Jesus is God's gift of wisdom to us. You don't have to be particularly wise because God will gift you the wisdom of God in the person of Jesus. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is talking about wisdom and strength. And in the summary of that chapter, he says, God has united you with Christ Jesus. In other words, because you're a follower of Jesus, because you've said yes to Jesus, you're, you're a part of his body. You've been united with him. And Jesus is the wisdom of God. The way he puts it is for our benefit. There's that what he wants for us. God made him, Jesus, to be wisdom itself. If you've got Jesus, you've got God's wisdom. He goes on to to add to the benefits that God has given us in Jesus. Christ made us right with God. He's given us the gift of righteousness. He made us pure and holy. He's sanctifying us. He is making us pure and holy and freed us from sin. He's given us redemption. He's bought us back from the ravages of sin. So that's why we say yes to Jesus. We surrender our lives to him. He gives us the forgiveness that was purchased on the cross. We are bowing the knee to Jesus And as a result, we have God's wisdom. Today, we've been talking about God's wisdom. Human flourishing is the goal. The Bible is wisdom literature. Why did God give it to us? It's because he wants us to flourish. So here's what I want you to do. In your growth guide, under the challenge, there's a little block of space. And I want you to pick and post a question that will lead you to God's wisdom. You can borrow one of mine if you found that particularly helpful and you just say, I want to have that question in front of me. Maybe you've been facing a particular situation you're confused about and you just know, if I just ask what the wise thing to do is, I'll probably get some insight. So I'm going to put that one down. Others, you might be saying, you know what? I recognized I've been telling myself lies. I've been saying I can't do this or this isn't going to work out or God's not this or God is that. And I just recognize that's a lie, and I need to ask myself, am I telling myself and others the truth? Or maybe there's some other question that through the scriptures or through God's Holy Spirit, God will point out to you. But just write that down, 
put it in that space, and then put it somewhere where you're going to see it this week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your wisdom. I thank you that it is found, yes, in a book, but that it is given to us in the person of Jesus. Lord, may we fear you, respect you, bow down before you, surrender to you, so that we can experience the blessings and benefits of your wisdom and give us courage and strength to act in accordance with what we know and see in the scriptures so that we will be truly wise. We pray this in Jesus' name.